Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sins still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, So that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ. We believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ having been raised from the dead. Is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died. He died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives. He lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. And Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. Lord, we ask that you would help us now, Lord. May your spirit guide us. um, Help us to be receptive to the things that you say through your word. Lord, I pray that these um, truths would be made simple, Lord, as we work our way through them. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. So Paul begins as he as he's done previous in the letter by asking a series of questions. It was very common for the thinkers of that day and age that the rabbis and, and, and the philosophers to teach through asking questions that they would, that, that they would prod the hearer, not just to, to listen blankly, but to hear a question to, to sort of reason through it. Uh, I'm convinced more and more. It sounds silly to me that, but, but that God wants us to think, he wants us to, to come to knowledge, to process the truths that he's given us, that we would not just hear them and let them go out, but that they would go in, that we would kind of wrestle through them and think about them, to ponder them in our minds, and that we would grow from them. And so in chapter 6, as he begins this new section that, that is really, it's Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8 are all sort of tied together. He asks a series of questions. The first In the English are two questions, but really they sort of composite one question or or one thought. And he asks, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? I read these questions and I think, why is he asking these questions? Where do these questions come from? And in Romans chapter 5, he'd he'd gone through a series of teaching, teaching about Abraham, that, that Abraham was justified before god because of his faith not by works and then he 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 introduces adam and he says that all of humanity has sinned because they are descendants of adam we're sinners not because we sin we're sinners because we're born of sin and as he works through that concept he he talks about death and sin in terms of kingship that Death reigned from Adam's sin to present day. In the time before there was law, he showed that people died, even though that they were sinful and the law wasn't there. So they weren't held, they weren't held accountable for their sin, yet still they died because sin had entered into the human race, that our DNA was changed. But then he introduces grace and righteousness, that there's a new thing reigning that that grace is now reigning in verse 21 of chapter 5 he summarizes what he said he said so that as sin reigned in death even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through jesus christ our lord 
And so he paints this picture that, that what once reigned, sin, death, no longer in Christ reigns, that now there's eternal life, that, that there's this reign of grace. And as he writes this, he hears two camps sort of surface. The first would be the group that takes sin lightly. And as Paul asked the questions, their response, uh, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? The first camp would say, of course, that's a silly question because God's grace abounds all the more. So if I'm more sinful and I continue in my sin, that makes God look so good, so great. His grace gets greater. I'm actually doing God a favor. As one who's trusted him, because the more I sin, think how much more elevated he becomes, how greater his grace gets. Now, the other camp would have been the camp that it was was accusing Paul of certain things. If you'll turn back with me to, to Romans chapter three, verse eight. And in Romans three, verse eight, we read this. I'm going to cut out the parenthetical statement. It would say, and why not say. Let us do evil that good may come. And you'll notice that the parenthetical statement says, as we are slanderously reported and in some claim that we say. So because Paul was this proponent of the gospel and, and teaching that we're saved by grace alone, not by works. There were those in Judaism, the Judaizers that were saying, Paul's just, he's just saying, just go crazy. The more you sin, the better God lives or looks. And so when they read this question, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? The, the second group would say, aha, just like we've been accusing you. You've done away with the law. You don't care about the things of the God. You can just live however you want to. But look how Paul responds. He says, may it never be. If you're reading the King James, I really like uh, There's actually, I like the King James in this one. It says, God forbid. Other translations say, certainly not. May it never be. Th- this is emphatic that there's passion behind this. Of course not. He says, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? If we died to sin, how would we continue living in sin? If it's God's grace that set us free, how would we, how, why, why would we continue living like that? When we went through Ephesians, we came to the fourth chapter in verses 20 through 24. Paul talked about the old man and the new man. And he talked about being in Christ that we put on, we put on the new Christ. Like it's, like it's a pair of garments and that we, we take off the old garments and we leave them down. And as I read this verse two, when it says, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? Like, like this, this old nature, how, how, why would we continue putting it on? And maybe it's on my mind because I know what my afternoon holds for me. This afternoon after church, after we get all settled down and I get back home, I'm going to start mentally bracing myself for something. I'm, it's already started. What I'm going to do is I'm going to, walk out to the patio and I'm going to look at my old pair of cami pants back in the Navy that I can still fit into. These are my weed whacking pants. I have a pair of weed whacking pants. I have weed whacking socks and I have a weed whacking t-shirt and I have weed whacking shoes. None of them are allowed in the house. I have never washed them ever, ever. They are foul. They are bad. They look, they're desert candy pants, but they're like brown. You can stand them up. They're like they went to the cleaner and they use starch. And so I'll get out there. I'll kind of shake them out for snakes, scorpions, any other critters that we have here. And it's just like, you know, when, you, when you're a kid and you want to jump into the cold pool, you got to build yourself up. And it's like, okay, I'm going in. You got to push the leg through because they've so like, stuck together that i've got to force the opening back in and i force it through both ways and then i come to the socks and i pick up like a piece of cardboard and i do the same thing put in the shoes it's nasty and then i start weed whacking and then as i weed whacking things start loosening up because they get moist and you know the sweat and it they get they they just kind of get comfortable 
I get used to them. But, but you guys have this reaction like, Gunnar, why would you put those on? And Paul talks about our old nature before Christ in the same way that I describe my, my weed whacking pants. And we're so prone. We've been set free from sin. And instead of putting on the new man and walking in righteousness, how Christ wants us to walk, we go back to those dirty, nasty weed whacking pants and we put them on. And he says that Christ has set you free. His grace has abounded. You've died to sin. Why, why would you go back to it? He continues this thought in verse four or verse three, excuse me. And he says, or do you not know? Circle that word. No. N. I mean, K N O W. It happens a number of times in this passage. In verse three, we see, or do you not know that something in verse six? We see knowing this, that our old self was crucified. Verse nine, knowing that Christ having been raised from the dead. Verse 11, not knowing, but it says, even so consider the idea of thinking about something. It's critical that we understand doctrinal truths. God wants us to know certain things that he's revealed to us. This is why I teach a Bible book at a time. I don't just choose stuff topically. We, we submit ourselves to the Bible When I teach a book at a time, I'm forced to teach on subjects that I would never choose on my own. He wants us to know certain things. There's a battle for our minds in the word of God. God wants us to understand certain things because what you know and what you think, what you believe about this world affects how you live out your life. How you live out your life reveals what you think. And so there's this battle for knowledge. And he says, or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the father, so we too might walk in newness of life. It's interesting. Maybe for me, because I've been studying this so much and, and working my way through Romans over and over and over again. When I come to this section, he says, or do you not know? Are you not aware that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism. So baptism occurs three times all of a sudden. And I start thinking, has, has Paul talked about baptism up to this point in Romans? Because he's saying that we should know it. He asked this question knowing that we've been baptized into Christ Jesus. Has he made mention of this at all? I'm glad you asked. So I start searching. I, I go onto the computer. I go, how many times, where's, has he introduced baptism yet in Romans? And so I fire it up into the computer of all different forms. So I, I deal with the, all the different ways that baptism could be used. The baptism used three times in Romans. These are the only three times that Paul references baptism in his whole letter. He hasn't said anything about it up to this point. And then he uses it three times and then he basically moves on and he's not going to talk about baptism at all. And so then I started asking the question, like, what has he said in the first five chapters that, that would help us to understand how this word is being used here? So we're going to go through all five chapters right now. Today's service can be a lot longer. I'm just joking. The best way to understand what's being said in the first five chapters is for us to go over to Galatians chapter three. Galatians has been referred to as as a mini Romans. And in Galatians chapter three, verses 23 through 29, I believe these verses kind of give the cliff notes, they explain all that Paul has talked about in the first five chapters of Romans. And so in Galatians chapter three, he begins. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. This is the first part of Romans. He, he makes the case in the first three chapters that, 
that basically we've, we've all sinned. It doesn't matter if you're a hedonist, that you just live for your own pleasure, whether you're a moralist or whether you're a re- religionist, trying to live according to the law, trying to justify yourself before God. He says here that the, the law is a tutor. So as you try to submit yourself to the law, as you try to do your best to observe the Ten Commandments, but the whole Old Testament, there's 613 commandments. As you say, I'm going to do it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do all of these things. Paul makes it clear that those things can't save you. Their only purpose is to expose you for the sinner that you are. You're helpless. And as we try to, to obey the Ten Commandments, which people make it sound so easy to do, because we're not honest with ourselves. And as we begin trying to do this, we realize that, oh, I blew it. I blew it. I can't do it. I can't do it. Oh, this is, I don't want to deal with the law because the law is just condemning me. It shows how hopeless you are in your own ability. But Paul says here that it's a tutor. It's a teacher. The law kind of takes us by the hand and it walks us to Christ and it puts our hand in his hand and says he can help you. He can do what you can't do on your own. So that we may be justified. This legal term justification. The opposite is condemnation. This is what a judge would use to a person who's on trial. At the end of the trial, you're either determined that you're justified or you're condemned. Justification is so many people have said uh, just as if I never sinned is really, I think, a, it sets us up for even more failure. Justification is even though you've sinned and you continue to sin and you will continue to struggle with sin through faith, Christ's righteousness is credited to your account. It's not that you're not without sin or that you've never sinned, even though you are a sinner. Christ made a way for you through faith. Faith is the key. Belief is the key. And he says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under the tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized. Ah, there's that word again. Here he brings up baptism. You were baptized into Christ, having clothed yourselves in Christ. Now, uh, bapti- baptism to baptize it's an interesting word it's a it's a word that's transliterated meaning that there's no english word it's not like love like there's a word in greek that's love and we know love in the english baptism it's not like that there's a word in the greek baptizo and so we say hey well baptism kind of sounds the same so let's just make a new word from that now if you were to go to their day and you were going to research what the word was meant and how it was used it was a, a process for, for dyeing clothing, D-Y-E, or D-Y-I-N-G, if I was going to spell it two different ways. They would take a cloth that was whatever color, white or burlap. They would dunk it into the dye, and then they would raise it up. It would be a new color. That's baptism, how it was used then. And there were cleansing, that, uh, there were ritual cleansings that the Jews had. But the, but the idea of baptism was to go down one way to come up new and so here paul says in verse 27 for you all were baptized into christ you were baptized into christ have clothed yourselves with christ and it's this picture what paul talks about in adam in romans chapter 5 he paints this picture that from adam we all have sinned because we're born into this body of sin If you read the epistles, the New Testament, and you see how do the apostles refer to themselves as Christians, you'll notice the phrase over and over and over again, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And so when you're justified by faith, you're moved from the body of Adam into the body of Christ. And so you've been baptized into Christ, having clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. But you yourselves are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Romans chapter 5, the whole idea that Abraham is the father of many descendants through faith. Now going back to Romans chapter 6, in verses 3 and 4, when we look at this word baptism, He says, or do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus, 
have been baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the father, so we too might also walk in newness of life. So when I read this, when we think baptism, what do we think? We think water, we think swimming pool, we think Adam's Park where we have our baptisms. And as I put water baptism into this, I start asking the question, what does he say baptism does? You've been baptized into Christ Jesus, baptized into his death. You've been buried with him through baptism to death. So that as Christ was raised, you might be raised, you might walk in newness of life. Does water baptism do that for you? No. Water baptism, water baptism doesn't save you. So when I look at this, I, I think, well, what's he, what's he talking about? Certainly water baptism is implied here. There's, there's an aspect to water baptism, but water baptism is a symbol of something greater. I wear a wedding ring on my hand. Does this wedding ring make me married? Absolutely not. I had this wedding ring. I purchased it probably three weeks before we got married. And I had it in my possession. And I I remember before I was married, trying to like anticipating, like trying to anticipate what marriage was going to be like. I would sit in my apartment and I'd slip on the wedding ring. I go, oh, this is what married, this is what being married's like. I get to have this annoying thing on my finger. Like, I don't really feel much different. I'm like, I took it off. I'm like, well, I, this, this thing does nothing. As a married man, I can take it off. It doesn't make me unmarried. It just, it, it's just simply a symbol. But it's powerful as a symbol because it takes me back. It represents what happened on that day, 020202. Groundhog's Day of 2002 was the day we wed. Perfect day. So what could he be talking about? Well, what is water baptism symbolic of if you would turn with me to ephesians chapter one and in ephesians chapter one we're taught about spirit baptism which water baptism symbolizes so in ephesians chapter one verse 13 Back in Romans, Paul's talking about baptism, that there's this identification with the cross, that we identify ourselves in death, that as Christ was raised, there's life. But in verse 13 of of Ephesians, he says, in him, that's Christ, in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, the gospel is that Jesus died according to the scriptures for your sins that he was buried and on the third day he rose according to scriptures that's the gospel and so paul says that every believer has heard this message of truth the gospel and just just hearing the gospel save you no it continues and he says having also believed belief is the thing that saves you When you hear the gospel that Jesus died, he was buried, he rose again for your sins, according to the scriptures, you can hear that, you can reject it, and nothing happens, but he did it for you. You can hear it, and you can go, you know what? I believe. And at that moment of belief is when you become a Christian. It's not about walking the aisle. It's not about being baptized. It's not about going to church. It's not about any of these things. It's about trusting that what he did, he did it for you. And we're told that after you believed, you were sealed in him, in Christ, with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge to our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. So we're told in the Bible that when you hear the gospel and you believe that the Spirit of God seals you, you're baptized in the Spirit, that he indwells your life, and you're secure, you're sealed, you cannot lose your salvation. You're sealed until when? Until either the Lord comes back and you meet him in the sky or you die and you meet him in death with your new body. You're sealed. And at that point, the the seal of the Spirit's released because you're now in the presence of the Lord forever and eternity. 
And so Paul identifies this baptism, this spiritual baptism is symbolized in water baptism. Water baptism is important because it's a step of obedience, of faith. We are having a baptism in July. If you've not been baptized after faith, I would encourage you to be baptized in obedience. Now from here, we're going to work our way back to Romans, but I want you to stop at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, the reason I'm stopping here is because in our section in Romans, Paul is saying, you've been baptized into Christ. You believe you were sealed with the spirit. Surely he was recognizing that these believers had been baptized. So they're going back to that significant moment that was symbolic of this spiritual act of the spirit sealing you. And he says, we identify with the cross that we died with him. Now here in second Corinthians verse 21 He says that he, that's the father, made him, that's Christ, who knew no sin. Jesus was without sin. He was not born of Adam. He came through the father. He was was holy. He's God. He was not subject to the sin nature that we are subjected to. He knew no sin. He lived a perfect life. He obeyed the commandments of the Old Testament. He lived under the law. He died under the law. He fulfilled the law perfectly. He who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that when he was nailed to the cross, he was our substitute. We were supposed to be there. The wrath of God that is coming, the wrath of God that is due us was placed upon him for our sake so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Through that act, our faith that he did that for us. We're justified that God declares us right with God. Not that we haven't sinned, not that we won't continue to sin with our sin nature in this life. So we look back to the cross as we keep turning back to Romans, just stop at Romans chapter 15. I mean, first Corinthians 15, excuse me. And in Romans, I mean, first Corinthians 15 uh, verses 19 through 22 say something powerful. I know that when I first became a Christian, I was, you know, young, young gunner, kind of struggling, limping along in my faith, kind of struggling with, I believed in Jesus. I did. And especially now looking back, I do believe I was a Christian. But at the time, go to those Tuesday night Bible studies where there was free pizza, which was a big hook. I... God becoming a man, living a perfect life, then being executed, being raised from the dead. I wouldn't say it audibly, but I mean, at some point in my life, I would be like, come on. It just doesn't happen. How can it be? And I had believed. And I remember sort of my way of working through that, that, that point of like, lack of faith and conflict because I didn't really know the evidence. I didn't have a whole lot of knowledge at that point. I sort of said, well, it's a good amoeba. If it, if it works as amoeba, it works for me. It's like, hey, if I, if, if I have, uh, I can be able to pull myself together a little bit. I'm not struggling with alcohol anymore uh, or as much. There's free pizza. These girls are all really sweet and nice. And uh, hey, if it's just for this life, it's good. Well, well, the Bible says something totally different. Look what Paul says. He says, if we have hope, verse 19, in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. If the resurrection didn't happen, you guys are wasting your time. Don't, there's no reason to be in church. There's no reason to worship. There's no reason to do all of this stuff. We live in Southern California. It's a weekend. Go to the beach. Go to the desert. Enjoy yourselves because if the resurrection didn't happen, this is all in vain. And we should be pitied. People should feel sorry for us that we're submitting ourselves to this sort of stuff. But that's not where it stops. Look at verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. He has. The first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, that's Adam, 
By a man also came the resurrection of the dead. That's Christ. Adam was a type of Christ, as Paul said earlier. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. So we look to the cross. We died on the cross with Christ. He paid the penalty for us. The story didn't end on the cross. He rose from the grave and then he ascended. And we look forward to this new life, this eternal life that we have. Our hope is looking forward to eternity, not from where we've came from. Now, with that groundwork laid and we come back to Romans chapter six. Verse three, we'll kind of go through this again. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the father. So we, too, might walk in newness of life for if we've become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, here's that word again, knowing this, that our old self. My nasty old cami pants, the old life of Gunner, what I was before Christ, was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. Those three words in the English are one word in the Greek that mean powerless, rendered powerless, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. There's a, there's a concept here that we have to understand in Romans 6. I think a lot of us in Christianity miss this understanding. Remember, we went back to, if we go back to Romans 5, we see that word reigned, R-E-I-G-N-E-D. I'm proving to you all that I can spell. I've come a long way. I mean, I was looking at it too, so I wasn't really a true spelling test. But in Romans chapter 5, as he talks about Adam, he starts talking about that through Adam, death reigned. Like the death sat on its throne with its little crown and its whatever they hold in their hands. Scepter. That death was in control. He says that from Adam's sin to the law. Law was not imputed to the people. They could sin, but they weren't held accountable to it. But during that time, death reigned. People still died because their DNA links them back to Adam. That they are a product of sin. And so death reigns. And he paints this helpless picture that we're held guilty because of the sin of Adam. We sin because we're sons of Adam. But then he introduces Christ. That Christ conquered death. And there's a a new king in town. And this king is grace. Verse 21 of chapter 5. So that as sin reigned through death. Even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Christ Jesus. He says, where there's sin, grace abounds all the more. I don't care how bad you've sinned, whatever you've done, Christ conquered it on the cross. His grace is totally sufficient for us. And now when we come to verses 6 through 7, he says that we've been freed from sin. I'll never forget my first car. If Ann and I ever are in the newlywed game, I'm hoping for this question. We've had 11 years practicing. Even if people last service knew what my dream car is, because apparently I talk about, you guys know my dream car? 1971 Super Beetle. I had a Volkswagen Bug. It was my first car, and that thing was awesome. I lost it because I fled from the police on a resisting, evading, arresting, but we won't talk about that now. Kind of part of the process of me becoming a Christian But I really want to get a 1971 Super Beetle again. The thing was awesome. I remember I was 17. I'd saved up. My dad went with me to go shopping because I didn't have a car. And and the first place we pulled up to had my car. It was this retired Navy guy who was like a mechanic in the Navy. He kept it in the garage. He like kept it in mint condition. But my dad said, you can never buy the first car you look at. That's the number one rule of buying cars. So we continued to look around. And as we looked around, I'm like, I want that bug. He said, okay, like, I agree with you. That's the best one we've looked at. So I went there with like a wad of cash in my pocket, just burning a hole. And I went to to the guy and I said, I'm going to buy the bug. And I took out my hundred dollar bills, laid him. He, he signed over the pink slip. And then I drove away my car. 
I drove it away. I got home and like six weeks later, there was a, a piece of paper from the DMV and I opened it and it was the pink slip registered to Gunnar Hansen. I was the owner of that car. It was mine. This section is about ownership. See, because before you came to Christ as your savior, death had your pink slip. Your pink slip was owned by him. Now, when you came to faith in Christ, ownership was transferred over you. Now, so even grace would reign through righteousness. Grace has your pink slip. You're under the control of grace. You're under the control of God. He owns your pink slip. It doesn't mean that you could slip back to your old nature, but you're, you're not bound by it because he's put away the power of sin and death. When I was a SEAL instructor, it was really funny. I, had, I was able to arrange for Miles McPherson to come down to, to get a tour of the base. Miles is a pastor of this real big church in San Diego. He, uh, he was an NFL player, and he's a super funny guy. And so he shows up at Bud's and he, to the quarter deck, which is a lobby and Navy talk. And there's two students working the desk. They are Bud students. They're wearing their little helmet. They're terrified of like everybody. They got to be on their best behavior at all times because at any moment, an instructor can pop around the corner and just start making their life miserable. Miles doesn't really care about that. He just wants to get in their minds and to learn from them. He, he's hey, what are you guys so jumping for? Come on, come on. Start talking to me. How's it loud? How's it? How, come on. They can't hurt you. He's like, yes, he can. They can hurt us a lot. Come on. Just let me know what's life like. And they're like, sir, we really would like to disengage from this conversation. We're here to answer phones and to check IDs. And we're not here to like socialize. And Miles is like, just like, come on, guys. Like, let me like, come on. And as he's talking, the instructor walks in and Miles is like, hey, guys, how's it going? High five. Talks to them. No problem. Instructors look at the kids are like, what are you doing? Are you talking to him? Well, we were trying to be polite. Drop on down. Hey, why don't you go hit the surf and come back? And Miles is just cracking up. And why is Miles cracking up? Because he's not under their authority. They can't do anything to him. Now, these students are totally under the instructor's authority. They're not controlled. They are totally in control by them. Miles is not. I've been doing a lot of ride-alongs with a canine guy. So I've really been enjoying like learning about these dogs. And the guy I ride with, Ryan, his dog, Cujo, well, his name's really Utah. And the dog's like a chainsaw on a leash. And he's really friendly as long as he has his muzzle on you, on him, not you. And so he'll get out, he'll throw himself, he'll, he'll start attacking you. And like, you know, I like playing with him as long as he has his muzzle on because then I don't get bit. And so... So then going and rides with him, I'm starting to learn about these dogs. And, and I'm like, well, what makes me? He's like, well, they're just driven and they're trained from like three days old that, that they are the toughest creature in existence. The only one who's tougher to them, the only one that they bow down to is their handler. He's like, it's so bad. Uh, I'm like, well, how do you take vacation? It's not like you can just send a 13-year-old kid over to watch your dog. He's like, oh, no, if we're gone, we got to like chain up the cage with a padlock and like really secure them for liability. I'm like, so you, but you take vacations. He's like, oh yeah, we take the dog to the kennel. They lock it up at the vet and other handlers will come to, um, to, to deal with them, to take them for walks and whatever. And he's like, yeah, I, when my buddy's dog, I went in and picked it up. I took it for a walk and I was letting it go to the bathroom and it did something wrong. So I gave it a correction. And he's like, when I gave it a correction, the dog looked at me and was like, and he's like, all right, I get it. I'm just here to walk you. I'm not your handler. We'll just calm down. Just go to the bathroom, do your tinkle, and then we'll just put you away. And we'll... Why did the dog do that? He has one authority, his handler. And even though this other officer was a handler, he's not authority over this dog. If you're in Christ... Satan no longer has authority over you. Death no longer has authority to you. When we're tempted by sin, you don't have control over me anymore. I submit. This is my master. And this is kind of what, what Paul's getting at. For knowing this, our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. He rendered it powerless. Your pink slip is not owned by death anymore. 
Christ has your pig slip so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. This whole idea of slave, we are slaves. How does Paul introduce himself in this letter? Bond slave. The English tones it down. It's literally slave. I'm a slave of Christ. We all are slaves. What are you enslaved to? You're no longer, you've been set free. There's this movie out, Lincoln. How many of you guys have seen Lincoln? You guys all stayed awake through it? I saw, I had, it was on the plane on the way to Israel. So I watched it twice. On the way there and on the way back. I fell asleep both times. I made it like a third of the way through and then I fell asleep and I kind of woke up for the ending. It's a powerful, powerful movie because it's talking about a, a time in our history when slavery was allowed. None of us in this room truly knows slavery. Never seen human beings on slave blocks being auctioned off like animals. That here are founders who, who broke away from the motherland for their freedom simultaneously held and owned other human beings. And at the, at the end of that, when he... When Abraham Lincoln, through all of the, the, the battling and finally made it and the, the law went through, that slavery was outlawed in our country. The, was it the Emancipation Proclamation? And then two years later, Congress finally made it law of the land. After all of the slaves were set free, many slaves, even though they were free, continued to live under slavery. Even though their, their owners had no authority over them, they were set free. And that happens to us as Christians. You've been set free. Your pink slip's been transferred. Yet you continue to live under the authority of something that has no longer has authority over you. He died. We died with him. As we identify with him, we've been set free. Now, if we have died with Christ, verse 8, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. I stumbled across the story of J. Vernon McGee. It's not in his commentaries this week. When he was a guest lecturer at seminaries, he he, he would often do like a condensed teaching, like over two weeks. He would teach over certain books to those seminary students. At one time when he was down at Dallas Theological Seminary teaching on Romans, he spent two weeks going through Romans. When he got to this section, he, to, he told a story as he masterfully did. He told a story of a young woman and a young man who were raised down south. They were high school sweethearts. They, they met and after high school they married and they lived a number of years together happily. And then the man got sick and he passed away uh, when they were in their middle ages. And the pain of the loss of um, this woman was so great that she couldn't imagine living without him. And so after the husband was embalmed, she decided instead of burying him that she would place him in a glass case. And as they walked into their plantation style house, there was a big room from the front door and she placed John in his glass case at the front door. And for years, she lived about her life. She'd open the door from, from going grocery shopping. She'd say, hi, John, how's you doing? And she would go on about her life. And then as she lived, oh, bye, John, how you doing? See you later. I got to go run some errands. This went on for years, apparparently. I have no idea if it's a true story, but it's a great story. <laughs> Don't let truth get in the way of a good story. And so then she decided that she needed a vacation. She needed to get away. So she took an extended trip to Europe. And while she was in Europe, she met another man, fell in love. They... It was a fast sort of relationship. They got married and the new husband flew back to the United States where he was going to settle down with her. And as he's sweeping her off her feet, about to walk into their new house, he opens the door and what does he see? John. He drops the lady. He's like, what is that? She's like, oh, that's John. That's my first husband. He, uh, I keep him around. I, I just can't think. I, I just like have him around. He keeps me comfortable. He's like, No. No, absolutely not. He immediately goes out and he digs a hole, takes Big John in his case, and he buries Big John, covers him up. He says, you're with me now. John is gone. We have our new life. 
And the point that he made is that's what Christ did with our old, our old life. Sin is, he's conquered death. We're now with him if you're in Christ. And where he ended with the story, he's like, well, at least you'll never forget this passage in that story. And so when you hear about our old nature, you'll think about Big John and you'll recognize when you're sinning or you're falling back that you're with Big John. But he continues, I'll move on. Last service thought Big John was more funny than you guys, or you guys are afraid to laugh. I don't know. <laughs> but verse 12, it says, therefore, do not let sin reign. There's this authority again. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. So here's the idea of authority again. He gives a command. And I don't think God would give us this command if, it, if, it, if there wasn't something behind it for us. He says, therefore, do not let sin reign and do not go on presenting the members of your body. But there's this idea of like, stop submitting and stop falling and, and stand in your new life in Christ. This idea of instruments, he talks about our body as instruments. This was a word for warfare tools. You wouldn't go to the battlefield in the middle of a gunfight, stop and tie your shoe and ask the enemy, hey, can you hold my gun for a second? And this is the idea. And this is hard. I'm not, I'm not saying that there's anything easy about this. But, but for me in my life, I struggled with this issue. I became a Christian and I, I struggled dealing with my sin, my old life. My nickname in the SEAL teams was Dirty Bird. And it wasn't because of my weed whacking pants. Because I had the same thing patrolling. You don't want to wash your clothes because you want the enemy to smell your old spice. Got to keep them dirty. You want to smell like the land. You want to you make the normal ship guys a little nervous around you. you, you, you we, have this, we have this reputation. That's not at all. I used to tell people that, but the reality was is that my drink of choice was wild turkey, the hard stuff, 100 proof. And when I drank wild turkey, everybody drank wild turkey. It was my thing. Everybody was going to get it. So they named me wild turkey or dirty bird because they all succumbed to this. And drink. Man, I struggled. I'd become a Christian. I'd go to church and, and then I'd be in the bars. I'd be with my buddies. I'd be drinking and stumbling. I'd, then I'd come home and just be riddled with guilt. And it was on that one weekend where I came across my old buddy who was kryptonite to me. Dear, dear friend. But when I was around him, Gunner put on his old self, put on those old clothes. I saw that the Padres were playing in Atlanta. He was from Atlanta. We had this friendly rivalry. So we go to the local bar in Coronado. Somehow, when we were drunk as could be, we ended up at the airport, ended up in Atlanta the next day. By the time I got to Atlanta, I started to sober up thinking, man, Gunnar, how did I, why, how did I, how did I get here? He's still drinking. We're, and then the Padres lose the next two games, which was even worse. But that's normal for the Padres. And I'm feeling guilty. He's still drinking. We finally, it's Sunday. We were flying back and I'm heading to, I'm like, I'm going to get back to the evening service and go to church. And you'd never guess who was sitting behind us in the airplane, a whole church group. And right behind me was a pastor talking to a girl about what Jesus has done in her life and all this stuff. And I'm just like feeling miserable. And my friend's drinking and drinking and I'm praying like, Lord, just pass him out. And then he's getting upset about what he's hearing behind him. So he starts speaking things to them that would offend them. It was before 9-11, so the rules were a little bit more lax. And I'm like, I can't take any more of this. So I'm going to act like I'm sleeping. So I'm like, fall, I'm pretending to fall asleep, praying that he pass out. I can hear that he's continuing to order drinks. He's ordering drinks now for me and for him. And he's drinking both of them. And I'm like, oh, no. Lord, can he just pass out? Can he just pass out? Finally, he went to sleep. We land in San Diego. We get out of the plane. As we enter, exited the plane, my friend looks at me and he says, if I hear that guy say one more thing about Jesus, I'm going to go punch him in the face. I was like, brother. Like, you're starting to offend me now. Like, what's going on with you? Why are you so upset? He's, and he looked at me, my, one of my very best friends in the world. He says, man, I believe just like you. I believe in God and everything. But this, this whole Jesus thing is just out of control. And with those words, it was like a knife went into my back. I had become a Christian. 
But here the people who knew me the most had no idea that I was now professing Christ as Savior. I went back to the team and I just remember like taking my Bible and saying, you know what? This just isn't working for me, God. Like everything, it must just be a a big game I'm playing. I don't have the same joy. Maybe everybody's just playing the same game I'm playing. But I can't do it anymore. I'm done. I'm done saying I'm a Christian. But it wasn't like I was walking away. It was more like, it's not that I don't want to be a Christian. It's just I can't do it. I can't do it. And it was at that moment when I think God began to like really work on me. I was broken before him. If you turn with me to James. James is sort of like the. He's Jesus's brother. He speaks on the same issue. And in James chapter four. He starts talking about this duplicity in the believer's life. It begins in verse one. He says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not the source of. Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have. You commit murder. You you are envious and you cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. So that you spend it on your own pleasures. He's talking about the worldly Christian. And then verse 4 is, oh, this is where I was. This is what I was feeling that night. It says, you adulteresses. If you're reading out of the ESV, it waters that down a little bit. It literally uses the term adulteresses, placing you in adultery with God. It says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This week on a ride along, and I'm definitely like clearing the story so that this by happen chance somebody in this room knows this person who i don't know who this person is at all i was on the ride along it's about 10 o'clock at night super quiet night super boring i was just stuck talking with the officer the whole time sarcasm like that was like the best part talking with the officer all of a sudden there's a call that there's a uh, there's a, a a suspicious vehicle in one of the grocery stores like one of the parking lots in the malls in escondido so we go over there. We just think it's going to be like gangbangers or somebody. We're going to say, hey, shoe kids, you know. We pull up, and the car was a very nice car. It's like 10 o'clock at night. Very nice car. And then there's a man in the car with like a very nice suit, like an attorney or a politician or something. I'm like, this is just strange. This is an Escondido. So the officer walks up, and he's just like, hey, you know, there was a, one of the security guards called, and just sort of not even giving him the right act, just sort of saying, hey, sir, you're going to have to, like, please just move. And as soon as we get there, this guy starts, I'm really so sorry. I'm really sorry. Do you want to see my ID? Do you want to see anything? Like, just calm down. We're like, nothing's going, nothing's wrong. He's like, well, I know the issues. I, I, I'm, I'm a married man and I'm supposed to be meeting a girlfriend here. And both of us are like, oh, I wasn't, I wasn't expecting that. And it's like, dude, just, just stop. Let's just stop. And the officer's like, just like the guy's still talking finally gets him quite down he's like listen sir i get it you're a married man you're meeting a girlfriend here but that's none of my business i don't enforce this law you're just loitering so just go across to the other parking lot and you can wait in the public parking lot and then we drove away and i'm like "Ooh, this it's very unlike this officer to raise his voice at somebody and then we basically parked his car behind one of these establishments puts it in park and he just and i was like oh I just didn't see that coming. And it was like the weight of what this guy was doing and the guilt that he was feeling. And both of us as married men thinking, I just can't imagine like being in that place. It, and then this, this, is, this is how God feels when we put on the old nature towards us. See, he goes on to say, or do you think that scripture verse five speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires for the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God. And he goes on. Cleanse yourself. Like God loves you. He's paid for you. He's freed you. Don't go on submitting yourselves and grieving the spirit that is within you. 
If we were to go over to Peter, which we're running out of time and I won't do it, but in 1 Peter 1, 17 through 21, you can head back to Romans. Peter talks about you've been bought with the precious blood of the lamb. You're only on this earth for a little while. Live it under the fear of the Lord. And there is something to the fear of the Lord. Because we're going to stand before him. We're under grace. We're not under the authority of death anymore. And he goes back to Romans chapter 6, the second half of 13. He says, don't do this. Don't subject. Stop presenting your members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. You're not a helpless victim. God has put his spirit within you. You have the ability to resist and to break free from the lifestyle of sin. Not saying that we're, we have to read all of these together. We'll see that in Romans 7, Paul has a struggle. We, we have the flesh and the spirit at war within us. And as we get to chapter 8, we see how the spirit comes into play. But he says, but present yourselves to, to God as those alive from the dead. And your members of instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. This is about authority. You're not under law. You're under grace. And grace has a far higher standard than law. Jesus died for you. He gave his life for you. It's a free gift, but it came at a great price. When I think back to that time of my life, when I was still under the authority of scripture, even though I was a Christian and I was acting like it was, it was miserable. And when I was broken there, I just like at that somewhere in that moment, I recognize I can't go on like this. I have no power. Sin has so ensnared me and I've made so many choices and I'm so trapped in these decisions that the only way I can get out is to fully immerse myself in the things of God. And I made a vow that I would never miss church and I, I am in church every Sunday and it's not because I'm a pastor. I have other pastor friends that say, oh, I can't wait to go on vacation so I don't have to go to church. I'm like, dude, I don't go to church because I'm a pastor. I'm here because I'm so prone to wander. I need the fellowship. So when we go on vacation, we're in church. I mean, and there's times when you miss church. You got to I'm talking for me. But, but, but I need it. At that point in my life, the church, there was a Bible study every week. And I need to say, I'm going to go to a Bible study every single night of the week. Because if I don't, I'm going to be going to the $2 beer special. Like I need to be immersed. I need to, need to submit myself. I need to be in the word. I need to grow. I need to be praying because my flesh is so strong. And I've laid down the foundation where I'm so used to being under the authority of Satan. And I need to know what it means to be under grace. And I know that this may seem extreme to you. But the question is, did Jesus truly come? Did God really become man in in the flesh? Did he really walk a perfect life? Did the sins of the world really get placed upon him? Did he really raise from the dead after three years? Three years, three days. We're told that when we believe the spirit indwelled us. And I recognize, like, I'm not, I'm done playing games with God. Like he did all this for me. I'm his. I'm tired of being a slave to the world and to sin because it's not a good place to be. This is for real. And my prayers that our church would would not be a church where we're playing games. Because I guarantee you that Christ didn't come to die for your sins, to be buried and to rise on the third day just to give you something to do for an hour on Sundays. He wants your life, your happiness, your joy is found in worshiping and serving him. I told you I was going to get passionate and I'm not saying that this is easy. Like I recognize how strong my flesh is. I recognize that. And if you're in there and if you're enslaved, I understand it's not easy to get out of. If we turn the page to Romans chapter 8, where we're heading, we'll see, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
We go all the way to the end. We read in verse 38, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you're a Christ, you're saved. You're secure. It's not based on works. You're not saved by works. You don't lose your salvation by works. You're secure in works. There's no condemnation in Christ. There is conviction. And conviction is a terrible thing. I mean, feeling-wise, it's a great thing because it points us to Christ. It's the sanctification process. I've gone too long. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you, Lord, and we give you thanks. Lord, we thank you that Christ conquered the grave. Lord, that he went to the grave for my sin, that he paid the penalty for me. We thank you that it's only by faith that one is declared justified. For if it was through works, Lord, we would be on an endless failing treadmill of hopelessness. I thank you that Christ died for me. Father, I look to the cross and I recognize that it was me that was supposed to be on that cross. And so, Father, I thank you that my sins have been paid for. Father, I thank you that the story didn't end on the cross, but that Jesus conquered death, that he rose from the dead. And in him, there's life. I thank you that his death was sufficient for me. And Father, we come before you and we recognize, Lord, that in this body, our mortal body, Lord, that we are at war within ourselves between the flesh and the spirit. And Father, I know that there are those of us, Lord, at times that feel like we're losing that battle. But we thank you that it's because of Christ that our ownership has been transferred. (laughs) Father, I pray that you would help us to grow in our ability to resist Satan, Lord. Lord, help us to live for you. Father, may your word take root in our hearts, Lord. May We come to understand grace. May we stand in grace. May we walk in grace. Father, as we grow closer to you, I pray that you would just continue to help us to understand what gifts you've given, Lord. We thank you that you've commissioned us to serve you, to serve alongside you, to participate in the ministry of reconciliation. Father, we pray that you would just encourage us, Lord. Help us to stand strong. We love you, Father. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.